This Resurrection Sunday we are looking at the, the road to Emmaus, the Emmaus road from Luke chapter 24 verses 13 to 35. I heard an interesting story, something that happened in the Philippines in 1975. They actually found a Japanese soldier who continued fighting World War II a full 29 years after the Japanese had surrendered. I thought about this and I'm sure a lot of people around the world would have asked, how is that possible? How, how, how can this be? Right? The Philippines is a big country but not that big that you can hide with so many millions of people living. But it is. Maybe he didn't have any dealings with the outside world for all of those years. Living in the jungle. And uh, if he did have contact, maybe he didn't accept the news that the war was over. Maybe it was his pride. He would fight his own battle with honour, even when the empire to which he belonged, the Japanese empire, had surrendered almost 30 years before. Now I think there are many today who live the same way. For them, ironically, they can live with a dead Jesus still hanging on the cross, but not a live one. For most, they find the stories of the resurrection just simply not credible. It's just not going to happen. And, and the, the inner pride just cannot come to grips with the risen Saviour and the implications, because there are no implications of that reality. Much easier to live with what we know, at least I'm in control of my own little world, my own situation, it's my own little kingdom, even if that means living a life of hopeless desperation because the world around me is living basically the same way. And I'm comforted by that, even though it's hopeless. Now this was the perspective of a couple of disciples. Perhaps we need to ask why Jesus would waste his time with two disciples that, that we, we don't even have their, their names. I think one of them was Cleopas. I mean, they weren't part of the eleven that were left, but most likely they were part of the, the, 70, the 72. Remember the story of the Gospel? Jesus sent 72 of his disciples around. Well, it's not entirely out of character for Jesus to make his most remarkable, remarkable revelation to the least remarkable people. He did that to one person, Mary Magdalene, outside, outside of the grave. And here we see two people who are, we've never heard before and we're never going to hear about them again. At the very least, it tells me one important thing about Jesus, our Saviour, that there are no little, insignificant, unimportant people for him. We all have value. We're all important. 
He has given his life for us. So let's go back to our story. It wasn't 29 years like our Japanese soldier that uh, the evidence was around all around him and still he lived in denial. That The events that these guys had heard happened that very morning. It was the same day. And so it was the very afternoon, a very eventful day, a very eventful Sunday, almost 2,000 years ago, when all of this happened. And despite the news of the resurrection, here we have two discouraged, frustrated believers. We're not talking atheists here. We're not talking those who did not believe in Jesus. Or they believed in him, but they didn't believe that he rose from the dead. These two characters had had a look about them of just utter defeat. They took their bat and they were going home to Emmaus. Probably going back to restart their lives all over again. The past three years had been great, inspiring, enlightening, exciting, uplifting. But now, as far as they were concerned, that chapter of their lives is over and we need to move on. So despite their emotional turmoil, this, this, this road, this road became forever known of, because of this wonderful encounter. And the reason that this story is so engaging is that we as readers are, are carried along with it because we can identify with, the, with, the, with these characters. And it is one of the most vivid and detailed resurrection appearances. It just reads a human story. It draws us in because we can relate to what these people we're going through. And as always, the Lord has an important lesson for us, something that we can learn, a few things that we can learn from this story. As Jesus was very patient, he taught them, he led them, he was with them, spent time with them. So where did they go wrong and how did Jesus deal with them? I suppose is what we're going to look at this morning. First of all, is that they were away from the fellowship in verses 14 to 16. Now that same day, two of them were going to the village of Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. And as they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them. But they were kept from recognising him. An important clue here is that they were moving away from the fellowship of the other believers. Where were the other believers? The the other believers were in Jerusalem, the rest of the disciples. The other disciples who had been to the tomb that morning And despite all the excitement of these other disciples, guess what? I know this is incredible, I'm going to tell you. Despite all the excitement, earlier in the day, 
these two were walking away from it all. And I think when we focus on our plans, failed plans, failures, frustrated plans, there is a natural tendency to just walk away, to withdraw from it all. And that many times, I would say most times, even includes walking away from the the fellowship of other believers and Christians with whom previously we could identify and spend time with and be encouraged. And yet, when we struggle, we say, I'm walking away, can't deal with it. Some might say that it seems a little bit unfair that these disciples were restrained from recognising Jesus for who he was. And one reason for this, I think, is that the Lord was, this was the Lord's way of making them verbalise their feelings so they could lead them, so he could lead them through the process of discovery so they can find out, so they can see the truth for themselves. And I think the other reason that doesn't seem so obvious here is that Jesus did it for us, for you and me who would believe hundreds or thousands of years after the event and walk and he's gently leading them and us through the process of discovery, lead them to faith, lead them to belief. Think about the encounter with Thomas, doubting Thomas, for example. Jesus could have appeared to Thomas in the interval that followed his open declaration of unbelief when Jesus appeared to the disciples Thomas wasn't there why wasn't he there? probably the same reason these guys weren't there dealing with the pain unless I put my my finger in his in his hand touch his side I'm not going to believe that's it locked into unbelief that's what he thought now Jesus could have appeared and just seven days Jesus let him just deal with it, mate. It's your unbelief. Gonna give you time, give you space. That's what you wanted. Well waited seven days and then when Thomas was with the other fellowship of believers, with the other believers, the other disciples, Jesus appeared. And Jesus turns to Thomas and he says, Thomas, what was it that you were saying again? And then he said, what did he say? My Lord. What would it take for us to come to the saving faith, to believe in the Saviour? Do we want to be left alone? For some, it's instant belief when they're confronted with the evidence. For others, for the rest of us, and I think I would say for most of us, it's it's a longer process, even if we've been brought up in a Christian home, exposed to the truth and taught the truth from a young age, whatever. It still takes that 
that long, long process, doesn't it? As they say, the old saying, right? You can lead a horse to water, but anyway. What was the other mistake of these, um, these guys? Well, they, they, they lived in the past, verses 17 to 18. They lived, they were locked in the past. He asked them, what are you discussing together as you're walking along? And they stood still, their faces downcast, and one of them named Cleopas, that was his name. What are you, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem and, and do not know the things that have happened here these, these days? And the original words describe quite an animated discussion. There's an intense conversation between these two as they're walking along. And that is when Jesus joins them in the conversation out of nowhere by saying something like, hey, you guys seem a little, a little down, what's wrong? What are, you, what are you talking about? What are you discussing? And, and the comment sort of stops them in their tracks. They, they said, where in the world have you been lately? You know, what rock have you crawled from? You know, what do you mean? What are we talking about? Are you the only person alive who hasn't heard about the things that have happened in Jerusalem lately? Where have you been? Jesus obviously knew their condition, but he still asked them leading questions to draw them out and give them an opportunity to pour out their confusion and disappointment, to hear their frustrations. One thing I can tell you is that Jesus has not changed and his methods of dealing with us hasn't changed. He will still draw near to us and listen to us as we tell him what our troubles are. James gives us a promise. Come near to God, come near to God and he will come near to you. Draw near to God and he will draw me to you. That is the promise. And what they felt was what most other people in Judea felt at the time. They were simply part of the rest. When they said this in verse 22, but we had hope that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. That was our hope. We placed all our hope on him and he died. Notice that they used the, 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 the past tense. We had, we, we hoped. We had hoped. That, that sums up the feelings of everybody else. Despite the fact that they had spent time with Jesus for a while, they were part of the disciples. And then they heard him, they teach and do all of those things. They still were locked into some false ideas of how God was going to bring about salvation to his people. Nothing was going to change that. that their, their, their mindset was fixed that this is the way that God's going to do it. 
Now, their expectation wasn't totally wrong, but it was too narrow, too restricted. They thought they can control God and his methods. They were wrong. And when you have false expectations, it's going to lead to your hopes being dashed because Jesus is always doing a new thing. What else? Where else did they go wrong? Well, they refused to believe the witnesses, verses 22 to 24. And what is more, it is the third day since all this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning, this morning, but didn't find his body. They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. But, you know, angels, they sort of come and go all the time. And they're women, you know. Who's going to believe the women, right? Then some of our companions, some of the blokes, you know, they they went to the tomb and found it. Yeah, the women were right. Surprise! But they didn't see him. Now, do you hear the contradiction in their statements here? They're carrying on, right? On the one hand, they were amazed by what the women had told them, and yet they continued to be downcast because they refused to believe what the rest of the believers had told them. Their their, their unbelief was still focused on Jesus on the cross and not on the resurrected Lord. One was a past event, yet the present reality was something else. And I think we, we all miss on so many opportunities because we want to live in the past. Lock in our emotions and experiences, everything on the way that God had done things before. And yes, even, that's even comfortable because it's comfortable to have a Jesus hanging on the cross. Stupid as it is. There's a story of how the first explorers to Australia found a mammal which laid eggs. Spent some time in the water, some time on land, had a broad, flat tail, webbed feet, and a bill very similar to a duck. They returned to England. They told the people about this and everybody in England thought it was a hoax. It can't possibly be true. Are you serious? They returned to Australia and took a pelt from the platypus back to England. But the people still felt it was a hoax. In spite of the evidence, they disbelieved because they didn't want to believe. What's going to convince you guys? People refuse to believe that which they don't want to believe in spite of the evidence in front of them. Where else did they go wrong? They didn't believe the scriptures. Verses 25 to 27. He said to them, how foolish you are. And how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? 
And beginning with Moses and the prophets, he explained to them. Just think about the patience here. He explained to them. This is Sunday school. What was said in the scriptures concerning himself. Bang, 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 bang. He was leading them through. Now, if Jesus had followed good counselling practice here, he would have said to them, Oh, guys, I understand what you're going through. Instead, he says, Oh, you foolish you are. How foolish you are and how slow of heart to believe. What is wrong with you guys? He doesn't, he doesn't make excuses, nor does he waste any time by, you know, walking on some sensitive eggshells in order not to hurt their feelings. He goes straight to the heart of the matter, spiritual foolishness. But I thought Jesus was a bit more sensitive than that, you know. Loving, caring. Well, he was. He's telling them the truth. What else do you want him to do? The, the problem was not in the, event, in, in the events that had transpired the last couple of days. It, it wasn't the injustice of it all. It's not even in, in others how terrible it all was. Now the problem was in them because they did not believe all that the prophets have spoken. They didn't believe the word of God. And I think a problem in that day, as it is in our day, is that people are selective also in the parts of the Bible that they choose to believe. Many want to believe the word of God but not all of it, just the nice bits, you know, the ones that make me feel comfortable and nice. Their understanding of the scriptures of the Bible is mixed with their assumptions and preconceptions about what the world believes in today. We can redefine marriage, we can redefine sexuality, we can redefine genders, we can redefine so many things. We've got to mix that in. If the Bible talks against that, then we can't agree with the Bible, those parts anyway. So we, and, and my own condition, I can't be challenged on what I believe and how I live my life because I don't want the Bible speaking against that. So I'm just going to go to a church, I'm going to go to a church that doesn't speak about those parts of the Bible. I'm not going to lock in or listen to some messages that go against what I believe because that just makes me feel too uncomfortable. How many times did we expect God to do something based on our own faulty knowledge of his word? In fact, we choose to believe idiotic preachers without checking the word of God to ourselves because they're the ones who are talking about prosperity. How are you going to be rich and famous? And God's going to give you this. He's going to give you that. We build up all these false expectations and, and when I go, we go to churches like that. And when God doesn't do it, we get discouraged and think that God has let us down again. I knew what they were saying was all rubbish anyway. Well, where did you go? The problem is not with God. The problem is with us. 
author Mark Buchanan wrote, wrote of his own experience in his book entitled Your God is Too Safe. He wrote that when he was first saved, became a Christian, he said this, and I quote, he says, I hit the ground running immediately. I, I volunteered for everything, anything that, anything that I felt vaguely interested in and marginally qualified for. I led the youth group. I helped with the music. I taught Sunday school. I wrote the church newsletter. I became a camp counsellor. I served as a, mount, as a mentor to several young men. But something somewhere went wrong. The zeal fizzled. The fire in my bones became only an ache in my joints, he says. My running became plodding. My lightness became heaviness. My joyfulness became jadedness. I joined the ranks of the murmurers and the fault finders, those that did not like the music or the sermon or the colour of the flowers behind the church, and I found thousands of them. End of quote. It's sad to see defeated disciples. I've heard a lot of stories as a pastor and I've talked and listened and tried to understand of the used-to-be's. In the good old days, they used to be These people perhaps used to be teachers, singers, leaders, helpers, givers. But something happened. Got their feelings hurt. And maybe the Lord just pushed them a little bit more and more from them, expecting more from them to help them grow, challenge them, make them feel uncomfortable, push them out of his comfort home. And, And whatever the case, they have now fallen by the wayside. Here is a couple of disciples on the very day of the resurrection. The very day they spoke with those who were there, who saw the angels, and they still didn't believe. What did Jesus do? What did Jesus do? He says, It's me! Surprise! What did he do? He did something really boring. Really, really boring. Oh, not again. Here we go. He led them through the scriptures. Oh, Dad, yeah, I know. You've repeated that verse before. Just, I know. I've heard it all before. Of course they heard it all before. These were the scriptures. They were taught. They memorized this stuff. And still Jesus had to lead them through it. Because they were reading it the wrong way. They had filters. They were blocked from seeing the word of God. Because they had their own presuppositions. As they read it. They couldn't understand it. And what did Jesus do? He took them through the scriptures. Even though this is unpopular, you don't need, folks, we don't need any other revelation, any other church, or you don't need another gospel. 
You don't need more time. The answer is you need the Word of God. You need to read it. You need to believe it. You need to apply it. You need to immerse yourself into it. And I'll repeat it again. The reason that Luke tells us the story of two despondent disciples on the road to Emmaus is that he wants us to identify with them. This is our story. We too are pilgrims on a journey through life. We too are prone to despair of life circumstances. We too are foolish in our misconceptions. We too lose heart when our expectations come to to a tragic end on Friday or when we lose a loved one through sickness and suffering. But remember... Every trial is an opportunity that God, where God leads us to and he wants us to discover his ways in and through the trial, even before he delivers us from them. And why? Because it's all part of the glorious resurrection Sunday. And because Jesus did not give up on them, they hung in there their interests continue to... This is what believers like. They're actually... Jesus knew their heart. He was patient with them. He led them through and their interests started growing. Tell me more. You know? That's the heart of the child of God. It's going to... It rings true because it is true. And it led these two to do something great. Verses 28 to 29, they invited Jesus in. As they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus acted as if he was going to go further. No, 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 no. Stay, stay, stay. Don't go. I want to hear more. See their hunger? As they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus acted as if he was going further, but they urged him strongly. They yanked his arm basically. Stay with us for it is nearly evening. The day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them. True believers will hunger and thirst to know more of God's word and seek to spend more time with others who have the same hunger and have the same thirst. This is the heart of the church. The two followers that didn't know this stranger, but they invited him to have fellowship, hospitality, to stay the night. And this is the best thing they ever did in their lives. How many times do you reckon they were telling this story in the rest of their days on earth? These guys telling the same story. Come on, Dad, Granddad, tell me that story again of how stupid you were. Just tell us. Right? Jesus, the creator of the universe, you, you... You had him in your house and you had dinner. Come on, tell me again. And then, as he broke the bread, porters of communion, right? Broke the bread. Their eyes were open. Their eyes were open because they were already get to that point. You get right up to the door. He led them right up there before revealing himself. 
the old, it's me, wouldn't have worked. Because that's just a, a hit, you know? Just give me a hit. I just need to be lifted up for a moment, right? No. Faith is a process. A journey. And Luke concludes this story with this wonderful bit of irony, isn't it? That uh, Their spiritual eyes are open to the reality and the implications of the resurrection. The moment that Jesus became visible to their physical eyes, he disappears. At that the moment their eyes were open, he disappears. So this action was a lot more than mere recognition of his physical features. They came to recognise Jesus and in all his glory and all his significance as the Messiah, the Son of God and the risen Lord through the Word. Before they saw the living Word, they had to be led through the Word. And it is true. They came back, they told the others, and they said, it is true, the Lord is risen. And, and the journey that was discouraging, suddenly, you know, downcast, walking like this, and then suddenly, you know, there was a spring in their steps. I reckon they ran all the way back to Jerusalem. But because they had to tell the others and find the fellowship with others, with other believers who also believed. If you have never done so, you need to invite Jesus into your life. He's not on a cross. He's not in a tomb. He is the resurrected Lord of life, of life itself in all its forms, and he needs to be in your heart. If you're still fighting the war, like that Japanese soldier, you know, you're going to hold out. I don't care what people tell me that the war is over, that the empire has surrendered. I'm not going to believe it. If you're still like that Japanese soldier, let me tell you, the war is over. Jesus has conquered. We know who's winning. We know who's won. We know he's the King of kings and the Lord of lords. What you need to do is surrender to him as Lord of your life. You don't need to start by understanding every bit of scriptures. Many bits and pieces we're still trying to work out ourselves. One day it will be revealed. But we know enough. We we understand enough because of what God has revealed to us through his word. But you need to start by acknowledging him that what this that this is true, that he is true, that he is alive, that he is your saviour. And if you are already a disciple of Christ, you also need to, you need him to take control of the steering wheel. He wants to give us a burning passion for life. We all long for the eternal as long as we are contented and distracted by the temporary, but don't be. <laughs> you know, we all think that this is, all, this is what life is really all about, you know, our own little foibles, our broken fingernails, 
and all that stuff, right? The little bits and pieces, the trifles of life. Open your eyes to God's kingdom. What he's doing now, where our hope is. Spend time with Jesus through prayer and the scriptures. Spend time with his people. See where and how you can serve him. How you can love him more. The Lord gave these disciples renewed passion and purpose from pain to joy. And from that moment on, I reckon that these guys, there was nothing that would stop them because they were transformed. You could lock them up, you can put them in prison, you can torture them, you can do whatever. And says, go, hit me again. There's nothing you can do to me. I've seen the risen Lord. Our lives are different. It's changed. And that is a story that has been repeated millions and millions of times over with believers in the last 2,000 years. And it's still happening now. The Lord is with us. Amen.